Thanks, Austin. Uh, good evening and welcome to Uni Church. I want to add my welcome to Jerry's. Great to see you here. Uh, my name's Rowan, and I'm one of the pastors here. And we have the privilege tonight of thinking together about what God is saying to us through these words written in history uh, about David, uh, but what they mean to us now as people living on the other side of Jesus. So why don't we pray and ask God to help us to think through what these words have to say to us. Let's pray. Father, we come here tonight from all sorts of different places with so many things running through our heads. We pray this evening that as we think over these words that you have for us, these events throughout history, the way you have acted, that by your Spirit and through your Word, you would show us what it means to trust your Son. You would show us where we need to turn back to you. You would comfort us where we feel guilt. You would challenge us where we feel pride. And you would help us to come running to your Son. We pray tonight that through your Spirit and by your Word, you would change us to be more like Jesus. Amen. Have you ever noticed that some of the biggest shocks in life, some of the biggest mistakes that happen to us, don't come during times of struggle or hardship, but they come during times of triumph, when things are going well and everything seems rosy and we're kind of walking along the street, whistling happy tunes in our head and we don't realize what we do. We feel like we're on top of our game and yet we get caught off guard with our defenses down. Have you ever felt that? Riding on some optimistic view of life, of work, of relationships, and you get the punch in the guts. Or you do something that really undoes all the good that you've done before that. As we open up God's Word tonight, we'll see that it asks this question of us. Have you missed something big? Have you missed something big in your life? Have you let the circumstances of life cloud reality? Over the past few weeks, we've been following the family line of a man named Abraham. might seem a bit odd to come along and hear people talk about the family line and why is that important. But what we've seen is that this man and his family, particularly one person in his family, becomes the most important person in human history, the one who controls your destiny and mine. And so this is an important family to trace through what happens to them. This man named Abraham was given promises from God. He was said that this, even though he was old, he would have many descendants, that God would make him into a great nation, that they would possess a land and have rest from their enemies, that God would be their God, and that through this family, all nations on earth would be blessed. Right there, God's Word is talking about you and me, people from all sorts of different nations who are actually blessed through a descendant of his family. We saw that Abraham's descendant David was made king. All sorts of ups and downs in the life of God's people Israel. But David was brought, the king that God chose, to the place God wanted him, in Jerusalem. And there he's in Jerusalem. He's got the land that God promised Abraham. It's this great nation. Many nations are being blessed through this man. And we saw in 2 Samuel 7, two weeks ago, that God upped that promise. He said, to David, that one of his sons, one descendant of David, would rule on the throne forever. That actually means that a descendant of David would not die. 
that death would not beat him, that he would be the one who is king and he would rule God's kingdom forever. This is the royal line, if there ever was one. And last week we saw more of the character of this King David, for he was the king that God chose and God shaped and God molded. He was a kind king who looked after Mephibosheth. I said it, yes. Who looked after this guy who was you know, the descendant of Saul, who he was so frustrated with, he still cared for him and showed God's love to him. This king that God chose was a great king. He had returned God's presence to the center of the city. He had loved God's people. He had ruled with justice and righteousness, were the words that we heard last week. Right now is a high point in biblical history. You had, back at the, at the very beginning, you kind of had the, the, the fall where Adam and Eve rejected God. And it's like, boom, big crash, cliff. And it had been kind of getting better than worse and not, not great. And then you get to this point now with, with David, where God's people are there in the place God chose, under God's rule with David leading rightly. And you're like, this is great. This is kind of like the best it's been since humanity were kicked out of God's presence in the Garden of Eden. This is so good. David is on top of his game. He's walking along, singing to himself, I'm walking on sunshine. You know the song? Woo! And it makes me feel good. Yeah. Da, 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 da. Do you know that song? Oh, good. David is at the top of his game. He's the man. And then we read this line. 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. In the spring, when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Now, at first glance, you kind of hear that, and you're like, sounds all right. What's going on here? David is there, his armies are out, and they're destroying the enemies who are against them, as God said they would, these people who were, were hating God and not kind of following him. It's like, this is, this is right. What is wrong? But then you, you look closely. And when you look closely, you suddenly see a picture of the king. The king who was somewhere he wasn't supposed to be. See, kings led their people out to war. In the spring, when kings marched out to war, David, King David, king of the kings, king over Israel, was not with them. He was at home. Well, what is he doing? Previously, David had been leading his armies. He'd been there with his men. Why is he back home? Has he got a sore leg? Is he kind of like, I just need a few, you know, I just need a bit of beauty sleep, a few naps, my comfy cushion, snuggled in. You know, what is going on? He's at the heart of his game. Has he kind of lost it for a second? Is he, is he kind of become too proud? He's kind of just sitting back. I don't even need to be there now. I can just do it by remote control. David found himself somewhere he should not have been. Look at verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed, strolled around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her. Now you can kind of think for a moment this is a bit of an accident. But I don't reckon it is. All the soldiers are out to war. If if you know the kind of geography of Jerusalem, where King David's palace was, it was up high on the hill. And it looked down over all the houses. 
and all the men are away and all, all the women are at home. And David, you know, he doesn't go to war. He sends all the strong, brave men, you know, all the ones that have the lovely ladies that follow them. He sends them all off to war to fight for him. And he gets up after his little beauty sleep and he walks out onto the balcony. What's he doing? What is he doing as he looks out over the city of David? There was no Facebook, but he's kind of flicking through the pages, seeing, looking for old flames, seeing for something that would interest him as he's kind of keen to see some excitement for his day. He was not where he should have been. And so he walks out onto this deck to look over his city and sees this woman Bathsheba. Again, he finds himself somewhere he should not have been. You can almost see how his mind works. You know, he doesn't just jump straight in, yes, I want to sleep with this woman. No, no, no. He just, I'm just, I'm just looking. You know, no harm in looking. I'm, not, not, I'm just, just looking at my, my kingdom. There's nothing going on here. I just want to see these people that, I, that I'm ruling and look out. What's, there's no kind of bad motives at all. I should be at war, but I'm not. Nothing going on there. And then he kind of sees someone. He's like, oh, there's a person. Oh, it's, it's a woman. Oh, she looks good. Oh, maybe I'll just have a little bit more of a look. Wow, she's bathing. That's an appropriate thing to me, for me to be looking at right now. And then he kind of wants to know more. And his mind is kind of ticking through. Like all sin, we don't just dive into it. We don't just go, yes, today I'm going to have an affair. And get up in the morning. Yep, that's what I'm going to do. Today I'm going to rob a bank. Brilliant. <laughs> Maybe you do. Come and chat to me later if that's you and we'll help you work through not doing that. <laughs> Usually sin happens one small step at a time. We kind of just dabble here, dabble there, make one compromise after another compromise, after a thousand compromises and suddenly we find ourselves somewhere we never would have dreamed we should have been. David takes just one small step. I just want to find out her name. That's innocent, isn't it? There's nothing wrong with that. And while there's no button to click, there's a messenger to send. And so he sends his messenger to find out the name of the naked woman on the roof from the place he shouldn't have been in the place he shouldn't have been looking. Verse 3. The messenger reported, This is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, what I love here is that the messenger comes back and describes this woman not in the way that humanity thinks, but in the way that God thinks. He doesn't come back and report her hair color, her beauty, what she looked like, you know, whether she was kind of um, really excited about things or not, or what her personality was like. She's really bubbly and happy, and you should be a great person for you, David, you know. No, no, no. The message comes back. This is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, wife of Uriah the Hittite. There's a really important side note for us to recognize here. So often in our society, we define ourselves individually. We think of someone's identity as who they are and what they have done. Uh, I am whatever your gender preference is. Uh, I am my job, my career, whatever it is that I'm doing. We view ourselves as totally free agents. I can be what I want to be, I just am who I am. We look at our achievements, our successes, and that's what defines us. We think that we're individuals totally unaffected by anyone else. But God has a far richer way of defining us as people. He defines us by our relationships. 
Firstly, by our relationship to God. We are humans. We are created in God's image. We are made in His likeness. We are different from every other creature on the planet. And because of that, humans have an intrinsic value and worth. We are created to image God. We are defined, firstly, by our relationship to God. Secondly, we're defined by our parents. We didn't choose how fat our noses are or how tall we are. We didn't go in the womb, yes, I want to be 178 centimeters, please. And you kind of went, okay, stop. We didn't do that. We're defined by our relationship to our parents, the line that we come from. You know, some people were fortunate enough to be born in this country. You don't need visas to get here. You can live and enjoy the the joys of of the, the health system and the benefits that we have. Other people have to get visas and, and get a whole heap of rigmarole to try and become part of this country. Others of us had the disadvantage of being born in a prisoner colony, like me. That wasn't my choice. That was my parents. I am defined by my parents. You are defined by your family, your spouse or husband if you are married. That is the family unit. Uh, you're defined by your relationships there, that you are a husband or a wife. A child. You are defined by the children that you have in your relationships to them. You are a parent if you are a parent. You are defined by your relationships to those who you would call your friends, uh, your siblings in the Lord or in your family. So the problem with our world is that we are too individualistic. We forget we are defined by our relationships. Just pause for a moment. God is defined by His relationships. Have you ever thought of that? He is God the Father. He is defined by His relationship to His Son. Jesus is God the Son who is defined by His relationship to His Father and the Spirit is sent from the Father and the Son together. He is the essence of God in that as well. The three persons are defined by their relationship to one another. But we are so individualistic, we think it's just about me. We think about how everything affects me. I am free to do whatever I want. It doesn't matter what effects it has on others. We don't see the huge ripple effects that it can cause amongst society amongst our family, amongst our church, amongst our friends, when we act in certain ways. Marriage is not a personal preference. We don't just say, oh, you know, if someone loves someone, they should be able to get married. Marriage is the foundation, the backbone of our society. It's what makes a family a family. It's this family unit that comes through marriage. It defines our society. Relationships never just affect me. My actions never just affect me. We are all someone's dad or someone's son, someone's sister or someone's spouse. God's Word helps us to see that we need not be so naive to think that life is just about me and you. We affect one another in the way we act. Relationships matter. This is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, wife of Uriah the Hittite. That's if God is saying to David at this point, David, she belongs to someone else. Get your eyes off. She is someone's daughter. She is someone's wife. What are you doing looking to her? Now, it's not just anyone here. It's Uriah's wife. Now, Uriah, he he was a Hittite. And that means that he wasn't a Jew by birth, but he's become a Jew. He said, I think the God of the universe is the God of the Jews, and I want to become a Jew. I want to come into this Jewish faith. 
and I kind of want to have all the initiation rights, and I'm going to actually fight for these Jews against people who I would have been aligned with previously. I am so in for these Jews and supporting David that I'm I'm there. He's a soldier. In fact, he was one of, um, they said, there's around 30 of these personal bodyguards that have been assigned as the SAS squad to look after David when they go on battle. He's the one who's given up everything to become a Jew, to protect David, to fight for God. What a guy. That's whose wife Bathsheba is, David. And at that very moment, as he heard that news about this woman Bathsheba, he remembers that Uriah is at war where David should have been. And at that moment, like the moment that faced Adam and Eve in the garden, David found himself somewhere he shouldn't have been, doing something he shouldn't have done with someone he shouldn't have been near. How often have you found yourself in that situation? 2 Samuel 11, verse 4. So David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to him, he slept with her. The woman conceived and sent word to inform David, I am pregnant. Three words that should bring joy of new birth and life, bring guilt and judgment. What has he done? At the top of his game, David makes one choice, one mistake, one error of judgment that brings death, division, and defeat. From this moment on, Israel will go downhill again, like the garden all over again. Eve saw, Eve took, Eve ate. David saw, David took, and David ate. Some of the biggest mistakes in life come during moments of great triumph where we forget who is in control and we think we are the boss. Where are you at in your life right now? Are you on top of your game? What's going on for you in your head right now? Are you where you are supposed to be? Is your mind where it's supposed to be? Are you thinking about the things you should be thinking about? Are your eyes where they're supposed to be? Are you looking at things that you should be looking at? Or or things that should be left for someone's spouse? Are your hands where they're supposed to be? I don't mean on the end of your arms. I mean, are you using your hands in ways that are right? Or ways to just bring you pleasure. The temptation to bring comfort and pleasure in ways that God has not provided is huge for all of us. We see the world around us crying out so many things. Come and drink this. Come and do this. Come and enjoy this. It will be so good. You will not surely die. At this moment, the king that God chose the one after God's own heart, the one through whom God's forever king would come and the one to whom God had given every good pleasure, thinks he can achieve something greater apart from God's will and plan. And so he takes. 
God is asking us tonight to reflect on our lives and ask us, is this you? Do you honestly think that your plans for life are better than God's? That you can achieve something that is far better for your comfort and security and enjoyment and pleasure than the creator of the universe who made everything that exists? When you put it like that, it's crazy, isn't it? But I do it. My hunch is you do too. Are you somewhere where you shouldn't be? Well, just like Adam and Eve at this moment, David has two options. Confess or cover up. It's the option that hit us so often when we're faced with all sorts of decisions that we've done or, or actions that we've done. What do we do? Do we confess it? Do we come clean? Or do we cover up? Do we hide it? Do we sweep it under the rug? For David, the stakes are high. If he, if he confesses, he could lose his job as king. He could lose his reputation. He could lose the favor of God. He could even be killed. That was the right punishment for adultery. So tragically, David goes with plan B, cover up. Let's just cover up this whole mess. And you see the depth of sin as he does this. He's like, what can I do? How can I cover up this mess? And so he's like, I know, I'll bring Uriah back from the front line quickly. I'll get him in. I'll have him sleep with his wife. That'll be great. Everything's sorted. The other kid looks a little bit like me, but hey, that's just the likeness. And so he brings him back. He pretends to care. Oh, how's the front line going? How's the battle? You know, it's been great. Been praying for you. He's the kind of the good king. And he says, well, look, I'll tell you what. Here's a little care package. Why don't you just go home and have some oil and a bath? And, you know, just, just go home and spend the night there. And you can imagine this guy has been away from his family. This is something he's keen to do. But he doesn't. Not while his men are in battle. He's like, it's not right. I can't come back. Who am I to do that? I'm serving my king and my God. What a man Uriah is, hey? David's frustrated. Then he goes to plan C. Plan B didn't work. He's like, how do I get a guy to sleep with a woman? And here's the key. Get him drunk. We wonder why drunkenness is a problem. We wonder why the Bible says don't get drunk. Alcohol is fine, but don't get drunk. The reason is because we don't think properly. We, we, we don't act rightly. He's like, look, he'll forget his kind of morals at this point and he'll go home and he'll sleep with his wife and everything will be good. What we find out is that even a, dr- a drunk Uriah is more righteous than a sober David. He doesn't do it. So finally, in his desperation, David writes a note. Directions. Directions to Uriah's commander. Directions to place Uriah at the front line where the fighting is the the harshest. And to put him there to fight for Israel, to fight for David. And then when the enemy comes in, to just for a second pull back. And let Uriah take one for the team. Who would do that? He writes the note. He gives the note to Uriah. Fold it up. Uriah carries it to his commander like a good servant. He carries his death warrant. All because David wants to cover up his sin for one moment of pleasure. Listen to what happens. 2 Samuel 11 verse 16. When Joab was besieging the city, he put Uriah in the place where he knew the best enemy soldiers were. Then the men of the city came out and attacked Joab. And some of the men from David's soldiers fell in battle. Uriah the Hittite also died. 
Not only is Uriah wiped out for something that he did not do, for some man's pleasure, but other soldiers die with him too, all for David's pleasure. Collateral damage. Oh well, my reputation matters most. And as I read through this story, I've got to be honest with you, I kind of read this and I think there is no way in the world I would do this. Who would do that? Who would go to these sort of lengths to protect their reputation? To, to, to kind of cover up what they had done? Who would, who would go and sleep with some guy who was serving you's wife at the time when you should have been out there? And if I'm honest, I feel like there's no way I would do that. I don't know if you're similar. But the thing we've got to remember is, this is David. This is the man who would not even touch more than the corner of Saul's coat when he knew that Saul's kingdom would be handed to David. He knew that would be the future for him, but he didn't, he didn't take it. Not on his terms. He, he said only on God's terms. And so he waited for God's timing. He didn't bring about it, even though he had multiple occasions. This is the David who was kind to Mephi. Oh, I can't even say it again. Mephi. Thank Lachlan. <laughs> he, he, he loved him even when he didn't need to. This is the one who waited patiently for the Lord. Who when someone put that final spear in Saul, even though at that point he was David's enemy, he was still God's chosen Messiah. So David put that man to death. This is a phenomenally good man. This is a giant of faithfulness and righteousness as ever we have seen one. If you want to do a character study of good people throughout the Bible, David is one of those guys, the man God chose, the man after God's own heart. Here is why this this passage is so important for you and me. Because greater men and women than us have fallen. Greater men and women than us have fallen. We are no giants of faithfulness. Yet David was, and he still fell. The moment we say, it will never happen to me. I won't do that. That won't ever happen. Those temptations don't really affect me. That is the moment that Satan has won his first victory with you, and he has placed you exactly where he wants you. You're on top of your game. You've got no worries. You'll, You'll be fine. And then temptation will come. And we will give in. The story of David and Bathsheba is a warning shot for every single one of us about the deceptiveness of the human heart. About what we do and how we live. I hope you see what happens here. It's very, very helpful. The more you cover up, the more sin grows. The more you sweep it under the carpet and pretend it's not there and lie, the more the kind of sin grows and your, the sins that you do and the rebellion that you commit gets greater and greater and greater. Nothing fertilizes our sinfulness more than the darkness of covering it up and letting it fester. Let me say it again. Nothing fertilizes our sinfulness more than the darkness of covering it up and letting it fester. Here's a helpful illustration for you. Sin is like a box of mushrooms in the dark. Have you ever had one of those mushroom kits? Oh, show of hands. Who's ever had a mushroom kit? Oh, no, you guys haven't lived. Oh, okay, so you can go to Bunnings, which is this store that sells mushroom kits. And in them, you buy a box, and in it's got like all, all the kind of um, mushroom seeds. I don't know how it works. If you're into biology, you can tell me later. Um, but basically, you squirt some water on, and then you put the box lid on, and you put it in the dark. 
And what happens is, in the dark, mushrooms grow. But they only grow in the dark. If there's light, it doesn't work. And you get this whole box of mushrooms coming out. Well, that is what sin is like. He said, it's just not tasty. Well, not in the end. Sin is like a box of mushrooms in the dark. When it's covered up and left alone, it grows, before you know it, into a box full of fungus. Let me tell you a story about the effects of sin, particularly sexual sin. A good friend of mine decided that Jesus was no longer worth following because of the actions of his pastor. He'd be going along to a church, a good church, a church that taught the Bible, that taught people the importance of understanding who Jesus was and putting him first and faithfully following him. And he had good friends who were going along to this church. But then it became clear that the pastor had been really sleeping with women in the church. What he'd been doing is he'd been counseling couples that were having marriage difficulty. He'd been encouraging the couples to separate. And he'd been counseling uh, the wife of the couple individually, as he would the husband. And he would keep counseling the wife until he would get the wife to sleep with him. He did this over 10 years with four couples. And then it came out. And the people in the church were so enraged, so hurt, that the one that they trusted to be faithful and to lead them into serving Jesus had rejected him. It had been all about his own satisfaction and pleasure. And it just sent ripples throughout the whole church. And people were so angry, angry at God, angry at this guy. And my friend said, if this is what God's servants do, I want nothing to do with his people or his church. And walked away from Jesus. It makes me so angry. The effects of sin are not just on us, but on the communities that we live around. Eternity is at stake, friends. You think that we'll come back to God, we'll think that we'll, we'll turn back to Him, <laughs> we don't. Eternity is at stake for your families, for your spouse, for your children, for your friends. Hear the warning shot today about covering up our sin. I do need to say, though, that sometimes people have this view that sex is a dirty word. There's something inherently wrong with sex. <laughs> it's not. Right? It's a gift from God. God invented it. Newsflash. He came up with it. I don't know what he was thinking, but he's like, this is going to be good. And there you go. That's what he did. And he made a husband and a wife who were married to be able to enjoy that gift. And if you are married, then it's so important to make sure that you're regularly having sex. It's kind of like the glue that God gave our relationships to stick together, to, to love one another, to be united as one flesh. It's, it's how God made marriage. A great theologian by the name of Christopher Ash, he's got this book on marriage like that thick, and it says, marriage, sex in the service of God. And that's how you kind of define partly what marriage is. It's, it's core. It's not everything, but it's, but it's core. So if you are married, please make sure you're regularly having sex. It's good for you. It's right. It's a good expression. So often Christians, though, are characterized as people who are anti-sex. It's just not true. I think Christians have the best sex ever. Um, let me tell you why. Sex is kind of like a good wine. Right? It just keeps getting better. The more you have sex with the same person, the more you know them, uh, the more you get to share together. It's, it's good, right? But people who are going around having one-night stands are just having endless upon endless sex. That's bad. The first time you do it, it's going to be horrible. And that's what they're getting every time. Sex in a relationship that is for life is just going to get better and better and better. So I want to say, listen to God's way. It is good. 
Uh, we're going to run a seminar, you'll see it in your notes there, for people who are married or engaged um, at church on the 26th of August. It's a Saturday. It'd be great if you'd be interested in coming along to that, to think through how you can grow your marriage. It won't just be on sex. It'll be in a whole heap of different areas. But it'd be a great thing to come along to. So put that down on your Connect card and we'll give you more details about that. Shameless plug in the middle of a sermon. But I just want to spend a moment, for those of you that are dating here, to think through this issue. Please, please be careful. Sex does bond people together. We need to be careful in this area. And I'm not talking about wearing protection. It's not one of those talks. I'm saying think about what we do with our bodies because it affects more than just me. It affects someone else as well. So often when we're dating, we're... We find ourselves kind of creeping closer and closer towards all sorts of lines that we set up. Good boundaries. One of the things that I think is is vital for people who are dating is to set up good boundaries and have someone to keep you accountable, to ask you, okay, are you going with your boundaries? What are they? Let's be specific. And have you gotten near them or crossed them? Really helpful questions. Write them down. Ask your friends that are dating. They'll love you for it Uh, because it helps you to say, look, I'm just seeing how you're going. I'm I'm not being the boundary police. I'm not walking around kind of... I want to know everything where it's at. But it's actually helpful to make sure that we're keeping the boundaries that we put in place. And and I don't just mean sex, that's the boundary. The Bible tells us to treat our younger men and women as brothers and sisters. I think a helpful kind of uh, thing for us is to say, would I do what I'm trying to do to this person I'm dating to my sister or to my brother? That helps us. (laughs) No. All right, we'll stop it. And marriage, now that you're engaged, you're getting towards that point, yes, the, the emotional affections are going to be growing and you want to express those physically, but be careful. Be careful. Um, don't go down those lines too early. Ideally, when you're married is the time to keep exploring those areas. Try before you buy is not a Christian value. It's just not what we're supposed to be doing. Pushing the boundaries is kind of like creeping closer and closer, step by step, to a sleeping tiger. Right? It's dumb. Because you know that one wrong move, one little slip, the tiger wakes up. And when it wakes up, it will devour you. It will eat you out. Sex is built to glue two people together. And it does work like that. It's like super glue. But here's the warning. Don't be stuck to someone who will not be your spouse. For when you rip apart, it'll take some of you with it. It hurts us. But this story isn't merely a story of sexual sin. The biggest issue in all sin is this. We think we know better than God. We think we know the right ways to enjoy life. What we're doing is removing God from His position as being God over us. And we put ourselves on His throne and say, I know what the best thing to do is. I know what fruit from the Garden of Eden I can eat. I think I'll be fine. I think this is the way. God doesn't know me. I'm not tempted like every other man. No. My hunch is that there is not one person in this room who has not at some point sinned sexually. If it hasn't been physically, it might be in our minds in the scenes of the books that we've read. We're all in that boat. We've all looked at things and done things and that we should not have done. But we need to hear this lesson from David. 
cover-ups cause catastrophe. Cover-ups cause catastrophe. Uriah's dead. His father was lied to. The lives of innocent soldiers have been taken. Their families are destroyed. If only David had confessed. If only he had just come to his senses and just said, look, this was dumb. I, I, I need your forgiveness at this point. But he didn't. The kind and just and loving and righteous and just king that God chose after his own heart. That king allowed passion and pride to perverse his character and to reject his God. Don't you dare think for one second that you are better than David. If only he'd stopped. If only he had confessed there and then. His problem was that he wanted the ark of the Lord in the city of David. He wanted the blessings of our God in his house. But he didn't want what was in the ark to be in his heart. He didn't want the Ten Commandments, God's way of responding rightly in his heart. Do you know what those commandments said? You shall have no other gods but me. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Oh, if he'd read it. Oh, if he'd lived it. If we would read it. If we would live the word of God. If we would let God's word dwell richly in our lives by his spirit. He would shape and mold and correct us. He wanted the ark in the city, but not the law in his heart. And so often we do exactly the same. We want God's blessing, but not his word. We want his presence, but we think we know the best way to live. But then we get to see the joy of David's great-great-grandson Jesus and the privilege of confession. As we stand back this side of Jesus, knowing that Jesus was the promised king who came in David's line, I stand back and I go, I am so glad that Jesus was not like David. Aren't you? If, if, if Jesus had just slipped up once, we'd all be in hell. Because there would be no forgiveness for sin. There would be no um, uh, of taking God's wrath for us. It couldn't have happened. Just one slip would have seen everyone for all eternity in hell. It makes me go, how amazing is Jesus that he, he experienced every temptation we experienced and more because he, he, he withheld, he, he didn't go. He felt the full force of it. We give in too early and we miss it. Yet he did not. He always trusted his father. He acted in such ways that were right. He showed mercy to the prostitutes and the porn addicts. Why did he do that? Well, not because he was one of them, but because he wasn't. So often we show mercy to people because we understand where they've been. We're like, oh, I've been there. I did that. I'll be merciful to you. But not Jesus. He had never fallen in and he still showed us his mercy. He did not give us what we deserved. And as he died on that cross, he offered his perfect and clean and pure life for our life. Jesus died not covering up his own sin, but covering up ours. With his blood. The option we have is to confess our sin or to cover up. Now, naturally, we hate confession. I don't know. If, if you're like me, I hate confessing things. I hate, I hate it as a kid having to go to the principal's office and explain what I'd done. And you're like, oh, 
that, that feeling of guilt, that feeling of, oh, they're going to think badly of me, of going home to my parents and telling them I'm suspended. It's, it's not a good feeling. It's not a happy feeling to have. We hate having to confess things to one another when we've, we've hurt someone or we've done something behind their back. It's just not nice. We don't wake up and go, yeah, today I'm going to do a bit of confessing. That'll be fun. No one says that. Not in their right mind. And then this little voice inside our head kind of says, yeah, you shouldn't say it because it'll, it'll, it'll bring shame on Jesus. If you tell that person what you really did, they'll say, well, Christians shouldn't act like that. And then that'll bring shame on Jesus, so I, I shouldn't say it. Have you ever thought that? Or, or to bring shame on my family. I can't bring shame on my family. Or, or, or maybe my reputation. Or maybe it'll bring about consequences if I confess this that I, I can't have. And that would not be helpful for gospel ministry if I was in jail. It would not be helpful for me serving God if I couldn't be in those positions. And so we listen to that little voice. Have you ever had that little voice in your head that says, don't say it? You can't say that. Have you had that? Let me tell you tonight, that voice is demonic. It's the work of Satan. It's him pushing us to say, I want you to stay under the guilt of what you have done rather than running to the freedom that comes with God's Son. The lying is just as bad as the sin itself. Have a listen to the way David responds. Finally, when he's confronted, and we'll hear more of that story next week. But have a listen to what he says. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 51. I want you to turn here because I want you to see it. Psalm 51, it's about in the middle. One thing I just want to note about Psalms... You know, sometimes in the Bible, there's a little heading that the, the people who wrote the Bible put in there about, you know, Jesus heals the 5,000. And you know, that's not really in the Bible. Just like the, the, the verse notes, the verse references, sorry. They're not in there. They'll put in later. Um, Jesus feeds the 5,000. It's just a heading to help you find that section. But in the Psalms, there's this description about the Psalm. That is actually in the original Hebrew. This is part of God's Word. So when you get to Psalm 51, verse 0, it's the bit before verse 1, right? It says this, For the choir director... A Davidic psalm when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. Psalm 51, we get to hear the inner world of David. We get to see him come to his senses and recognize the character of this God and to lose the guilt that Satan so longs to stay on his shoulders. Have a listen. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love. According to your abundant compassion and blot out my rebellion. Wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Against you. You alone I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. You are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you you desire integrity in the inner self and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you've crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. David at this moment spoke prophetically, pointing forward to what Jesus would do. 
God could, could, could forgive David for his sin on that day. He could wipe away his sin because Jesus would come and die in our place. Friends, we who know Jesus, we who have seen what he has done are in such a great position. We see life. We see hope. We see forgiveness. We see this so much more clearly. Do you see the joy Jesus brings? Our sins wiped away, whiter than the snow. The guilty declared forgiven. Those things you'd said and done, the things that you hadn't done that you should have done, wiped away, forgiven forever for those who trust in Jesus. You might have walked into church today oblivious toward God. You might have walked in kind of thinking, well, I don't know if there is a God or not. Or maybe you walked in even angry towards Him, at war with Him, angry at what He'd done and, and kind of wanting nothing to do with Him. You might have walked in carrying guilt for things that you'd done and said. Today, friends, if you look to Jesus, if you recognize what He has done at the cross, you can walk out of here forgiven. Every single one of those thoughts and actions and deeds and misdeeds wiped clean. Right relationship with God, eternity to look forward to forever with God. You might have come to church today confessing Christ. You might have walked in on top of your game, singing, I'm walking on sunshine. Oh, yeah. You might have thought that, you know, to all external appearances, you've been living the Christian life, living with all the external signs and symbols of someone sold out for Jesus. But underneath, you know, God has pricked that small amount of guilt, that thing you're holding on to. Today, you can walk out honestly and authentically a child of God by confessing your sin to Him, by acknowledging that we are sinners and that you have rebelled against Him. And asking Jesus to forgive you and trusting in his forgiveness. Imagine that. No longer pretending, no longer having to hold on to that external persona that says you're the best Christian ever. But being real and knowing you are a sinner. Saved by God. Today you might have walked into church. And come to God tired. Maybe even ambivalent. With sin lurking at the door. And feeling like it's just too hard to resist. Today you've seen the reality of sin. It's deceptiveness. It's ugliness. And the pay it gives. Death and judgment. But you've also seen the incredible mercy of our God. That Jesus died to pay the price for that sin. So don't commit it. Don't do it. If sin is crouching at your door and knocking, tonight, tell someone. Confess to someone, to God, that you're feeling that temptation and ask them to pray for you and ask them to follow you up. Sin is real and so is death. And Jesus died to pay the price for what we have done. Culturally, we, we don't like confessing. 
We love to get on with life looking just so shiny and nice on the outside because that's what Christians should look like, isn't it? But friends, real Christians are those that recognize that we are ugly sinners before God, that we deserve to face death and judgment and hell. But we have a God who is so loving, who is so kind, who is so just and righteous that He will extinguish the effects of our sin as He's poured them out on His Son. And we have a Son who has been raised to life, who willingly took our sin for us and is now our King. What a joy it is to trust in Jesus. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus, if you have not come to Him and confessed, can I say, can you do that? Confess to God and tell someone else as well. It's so helpful. But it will allow you to be in right relationship with God. Do not walk out of this room tonight. If you have heard God say you're a sinner and you deserve judgment, then come to Him. Let me plead with you. Come and say sorry. Thank you that Jesus paid the price for me. Please forgive me and help me to live with Jesus as my King. If you've wronged someone in this room tonight, then would you confess it to God? And then go to them and apologize, confess. If there's the sin that you've committed, maybe from 20 years ago, maybe from two years ago, maybe from two minutes ago, then share it with someone. Walk alongside one another. Don't be surprised when someone comes up and says, look, I want to share something with you that I've done and I'd love you to pray for me. Don't be like, how could you ever sin? Because at that moment, you just need to say, hypocrite. But listen, walk alongside, pray for them, care for them. And point people to the great hope we have in Jesus. Why don't we just spend a moment now, just in the quietness that we have. I'll give us maybe a minute or two. Just spend a moment with us and God and praying to Him and confessing our sin. I'll give you a moment, then I'll close in prayer. Father, none of us in this room deserve your love. All of us have turned our backs on you at one point in our life. We confess we are wicked through and through. Our hearts left to their own desires would run from you at every opportunity. 
but we're so thankful for your love shown in your son. And so we, with David, pray, be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. Wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Against you and you alone I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You were right when you passed sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me with the blood of your son and I'll be whiter than the snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create in me a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Amen. We're going to remind one another in a visible sign of what it is that Jesus did at the cross. As his body was broken and his blood was poured out, that it washed away our sin. We do that in something called the Lord's Supper, which is a symbol reminding us of what Jesus has done. Uh, we're going to pass around some grape juice and some um, bread. And we'd love, if, you, if you're a Christian, if you're someone who trusts Jesus, for you to, to take that. Um, hold on to it. We're going to sing a song. Um, uh, stand up and we can, we can sing that together. And then after the song, we'll come back and eat and drink together. If, if you today, for the first time, have gone, yes, I want to follow Jesus. And why don't you eat and drink this, remembering and, and celebrating that this is your step in to say, yes, I trust him. So we're going to stand and sing together as we reflect on what our God has done. Let's sing.
God, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus. For without him and his perfect life, we would be suffering death and judgment and hell. But we are so thankful that Jesus took the penalty on that cross for us, that his blood was poured out so that we could be forgiven. Father, we stand here today and say thank you. Amen. You that trust in Jesus, when you take this bread, remembering that Jesus' body was broken for you, and eat it in thankfulness of what he has done, that we could stand forgiven. And as you reflect on this grape juice that reminds us of the blood of the creator of the universe, when you remember it was poured out so that we could be forgiven, and that Jesus is coming back again, to give us life forever. Let's drink in remembrance of that. Let me pray. Lord, we are so, so thankful for these signs, these visible signs that point us to what Jesus has done. 
we are so aware that the signs do nothing, but your son did everything. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you are all that we need and that you have forgiven us. And we pray you would send us out marveling at your amazing grace, marveling at what you have done for us and placing Jesus as king over every area of our life. We pray it in his name. Amen.